It's time for the Tom Sumner Program. The Tom Sumner Program is a live variety show with music, comedy and special guest interviews every Monday through Friday. The Tom Sumner Program. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. Our theme music is Fruit of the Louvre, provided by flick composer-producer Howard Eddy. Stay tuned, because it's on now. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. The Tom Sumner Program. Hi, I'm U.S. Senator Debbie Stabenow, and I'm listening to the Tom Sumner Show. Hey, good morning, everybody. Welcome to the show. I'm Tom Sumner. We've got a good one in store for you. We're going to be kind of all over the map coming up in the third half of our three-hour tour. Uh, we're going to talk with um, Dr. Lisa Jones Engel, who is uh, a senior science advisor on primate experimentation for PETA talking about why federally funded primate laboratories must close. Then in the middle, the second hour of our three-hour tour, we're going to talk with um, expert mediators and facilitators uh, Bernard Mayer, and I think he's going to be joined by Jacqueline Font-Guzman talking about their book, The Neutrality Trap and uh, disrupting and connecting for social change. Um, But first, this uh, first hour of the show, we're going to talk with the author of a critically acclaimed book about uh, a woman's life with her war hero husband through 50-plus years of marriage and ALS. The book is called My Pilot, A Story of War, Love, ALS, by Sarah Jean Geary, who joins me by phone. Hi, Sarah Jane. Welcome uh, to the show. Good morning. Well, good morning, Tom. I'm so glad to be here. Thanks. Um, let me let me ask about this now, now. When you talk about having a war hero husband, we're talking about the Vietnam War. This goes back quite a ways, and and I I want to zero in on that because very often. Vietnam War veterans and their spouses are a little reluctant to talk about the experiences that happened to them uh, during and after their uh, tours of duty in Vietnam. What made you want to uh, share your story? I think the most important inspiration I had, I had several, was when I, my husband passed away in 2013, and the next year I sold my house on Long Island and moved to New Jersey to be near my daughter. Um, And I'm very glad I did. Uh, As I was unpacking, I went through his, I saw this big box of Vietnam letters and all my diaries and journals, and I hadn't read his letters from 1965 and 66 in so many years. So I started reading them, and I was just, overwhelmed. First of all, uh, I had to take them out of the envelopes, put them in plastic sleeves, and it was as if I was seeing history through new eyes that I sort of took for granted at the time. Uh, 
And <clears throat> I, he was 26 years old. Uh, we fell in love in, in college. And here he was doing a man's job out there with every thought that he poured into that, uh, letters with me. And I felt that I needed to record that and pass it down to my grandchildren and, and those that came after so that they could know that he wasn't just a, a 70-year-old gray-haired guy. Uh, he was a courageous young man. Uh, and he had a wonderful sense of humor. Um, so that was my way of kind of living life twice, going through the letters and starting writing the book. This book, one of the reasons I think that it's um, being so well-received and in, in, uh, winning awards and being critically acclaimed is that it touches on a number of different things because it, it covers <coughs> such a, a wide span. Yeah, it talks about heroism in, in combat, but then also um, after returning home from his deployment, he became a commercial airline pilot, right? Mm-hmm. Right, Pan Am. And, and um, that was kind of the heyday of uh, aviation when he was flying. And then, um, and, and then ALS comes along. And that's, that's almost a book by itself, Sarah Jane. Um, can you talk about that timeline a little bit and, and how it unfolded and, and made the outline for what became this book? I'd be glad to tell you. Um, when he came back from Vietnam, he had one year to go for his, um, that he owed the government. He had five years within a graduate from ROTC program. So he fulfilled his five years and the airlines in 1967, the jumbo jets were coming and they were just courting all these Air Force trained pilots. Come and join us. So the last year he put in at McDill as an instructor and he had five, uh, opportunities to go with major airlines and he chose Pan American and he had a he thought that it was really struck gold because he loved to fly and we wanted to see the world um, and it was just a very respected airline so during our years of marriage uh, it was we had furloughs facing us which I never heard of but I've heard of him recently actually um, he was laid off three times from Pan Am. Once was the gas crisis in 1970 and so on, which uh, was was very difficult for him. Um, and over his our span of marriage, Pan Am furloughed him for three, actually three times for 15 years all told. So when Pan Am recalled him back, finally, uh, he had been with the Air National Guard for 20 years. Because the Air National Guard out in Long Island was in Brooklyn flying the tankers. And then they went out to the East End where we lived, out by West Hampton Beach. And they went to search and rescue. So he flew the C-130 and he had a wonderful career with them. And so when um, they called him back the last time, he... uh, he was, we took some trips and it was wonderful. Then Pan Am crashed. Uh, they sold their Atlantic A300 aircraft and crew to Delta. So he went with Delta. 
for the last few years uh, that he flew commercially because he wanted to make up the pension that he never really got with Pan Am. Um, but honestly, the uh, ALS, he retired from the Guard as a colonel. He was in charge. He was the most meaningful job I think he'd ever had. Um, and then uh, a year and a half before he died, he um, was diagnosed with ALS. We always thought it was a back injury, a leg problem. Um, he had been doctors and so on. And it's a very hard to diagnose. So he had a year and a half. We thought he might have five because that was kind of the norm, three to five years. Um, so the last year and a half, I decided to make the bucket list. And we did. I wanted joy in his life. So we went out west on a trip that he could handle. Uh, I encouraged him to go on a biplane ride, and which he'd always said was too expensive at these fairs and air shows. And he went up and flew, and he enjoyed it so much. And I just loved watching him make that touchdown on that old biplane. So, um, and then it was shortly after that, the next year, that he passed away. Um, but I, I'm giving the proceeds of my book to a wonderful ALS organization on Long Island called ALS Ride for Life. And it's a grassroots organization that's raised millions of dollars to help people with ALS and their caregivers. And they helped me tremendously, emotionally, uh, taking the stress away, uh, and gave him some hope and support. Uh, so that's kind of the story in a nutshell. We went up and down all around the world. Um, all these times he was laid off with Pan Am. Once, once in the beginning he was a, a substitute high, high school teacher. He did the gamut. He wasn't afraid of jumping into anything. So... Um, but that's really it. Our, our, uh, we loved the airline years. They were wonderful, but it was a wrong time. Uh, it was just, if he'd have come back from Vietnam a year earlier, he would never have been furloughed. Really? It's all senior. It's like, it's seniority. It's like oh, a teacher. Gotcha. And, uh, he would have been a captain. He never, he was always first officer because he didn't have the time. But, uh, never complained. We had a wonderful life with Pan Am and Delta. When when um, the ALS was diagnosed, Sarah Jean, you said that he had about a year and a half. How did, how does that diagnosis and prognosis happen? Uh, well, first of all, you have to find the right doctor. We were very lucky. Dr. Lang at the Hospital for Special Surgery in New York City uh, had a friend who, who had... Um, symptoms and had a back operation thinking it was her back. No, it was ALS. It's a process of elimination. Uh, what they went through at the hospital with him took months and months and months. They took biopsies out of his arm um, and uh, saw him constantly. And we had a network of people, uh, occupational therapists that would test him and record um, all kinds of uh, social workers and people helping us. And finally, the diagnosis came um, because it comes different to, uh, differently to different people. There's different kinds of ALS. Some get you uh, at your breathing system. Uh, some hit you with the legs. Eventually, all your muscles atrophy. But his was the legs, the lower extremities, and his hands. Um, so that was kind of, that's where we were uh, 
we were very grateful because we started in the city with a pulmonologist who was a sister of a friend of a friend. And her, uh, he went to uh, this pulmonologist because he had pro- sometimes he had problems breathing, which was ALS. So she uh, tested him out and everything, and she suggested he see a neurologist. And she suggested, uh, referred him to this Dr. Lang. But, um, yes, it's, it's uh, very discouraging. Does, does the doctor out, say, you know, you know here's, here's what we found, it's confirmed, this is what the condition is. And how do they approach this idea of how much time there is? Or is that something you found out from researching the disease? Well, you're right, Tom. I did research because our eyes were open. And I read as much as I could about it. Um, but there there was hope in certain areas. When when we were sitting in the room with the social worker and Dr. Lang, and Dr. Lang said, well, I'm, I'm going to tell you, uh, it's ALS. And the social worker said, and so, Mr. Geary, what can you say about that? You know, what, what do you feel? And he said, it is what it is, which I think is filer pilot, <laughs> pilot talk. That's it. And there's nothing I can do about it, but to get through it. Um, and so you know you have a death sentence waiting you. It could be five years. It could be ten years. But majority of people don't last even three to five years. So uh, it was a very difficult uh, time. And this ALS Ride for Life group, oh, they were wonderful. There was a, a very well-known chef on Long Island who had ALS, and he was about 40. And they, he tried a new experiment. It was a, di- um, a pacemaker that was um, attached to the diaphragm to help push the breath out and help you breathe without a breathing machine. Well, he demonstrated it one night at the meeting, and Bernard was very impressed. He was sitting in a wheelchair and told us all about it. So Bernard thought, maybe I could do that. So he talked to the doctor. And, uh, of course, he was 73 at the time, um, so he had the operation. Five days later, uh, he couldn't breathe well, and we went back to the hospital uh, to see what was wrong, and uh, he never left the hospital. It, it caused chaos in his body, and especially with the blood clots that went up to his lung and so on, which we never figured out, but, of course... Age had to figure in with it, and we knew it was risky. Um, so there were there were things for, to have hope, and I just wanted him to be filled full of joy and happiness as much as we could be with the family and traveling until until the end. And I I think he uh, I think I I realized my goal because uh, it was tough saying goodbye, but uh, he passed away and. Uh, end of July in, in 2013. Sarah Jane, I have to take a break here. Can you stick around for a few minutes so we can talk some more? Oh, sure. I'd be glad to, Tom. Okay, the book is called My Pilot, A Story of War, Love, ALS by Sarah Jane Geary. We'll be right back. Hello out there, everybody. It's me, Tigger. T-I-double-G-R. That spells Tigger. And don't forget to remember to listen to Tom Sumner program on account of because he's so bouncy. <laughs> 
I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab, or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. Our lives have been turned upside down by COVID-19. When a vaccine becomes available, it's critical that all of us get it. What we do as individuals will impact everyone's health, including those who can't get the vaccine. We won't get through this unless everyone takes part. Now is the time to get up to date on all recommended vaccines for both kids and adults. Experts say it's more important than ever for everyone to get their flu vaccine this year. And if you're older, you should get both the flu and pneumonia vaccines since both illnesses can make COVID-19 even worse. Vaccines are available at a lot of convenient places So be an example for friends and loved ones and encourage them to get vaccinated too. We all want to reunite, travel, and get back to school and work. But that means we all need to get on board. This is the time to do what's right for each other. Get vaccinated. It's our best shot. Hey, this is Tom from the Tom Sumner Program. Catch me and a gaggle of great guests weekdays on Our Voices Radio, WFOVLP 92.1 FM. You never know who might drop by. Joe By from the Blue Hawaiian. Dan Serling. Congressman Dan Kildee. Alexander Zondrick. Actor, comedian Joe Napote. Woodrow Stanley. U.S. Senator Debbie Stabenow. State Senator Jim Annan. Comedian Brian McCree. The unknown comic. Mark Farner. And Tom, I want you to know Tom's my friend. You, you've always got great questions, and you know the material, and you, and you care about it, and it's uh, it's that's impressive. Nice to be with you, Tom. And I admire you for reading all of that. I haven't read the whole thing. I've got willing to admit that. <laughs> hey, Tom, this is my favorite interview all. It's like having coffee at the kitchen table with you. Tune in Monday through Friday from 9 to 12 right here on 92.1 of a Kind. And check out our website at TomSumnerProgram.com. Discoveries. They happen when we least expect them in places we thought we knew. And discoveries have a way of teaching us a little more about ourselves along the way. Welcome to Flint and Genesee County. Where up north meets down south. Home to Michigan's largest county park system and a vibrant culture. A place filled with discoveries we've yet to make. Throughout acres of beautiful lakes, wetlands, and woods, and in the diverse city beyond. Where the uplifting melodies of gospel choirs fill the air. Where the work of renowned artists color the galleries and museums. Where the fresh fruits and vegetables at the downtown farmer's market awaken our senses and where the cultural center and planetarium broaden our view of the world. Let's spend a few days enjoying the wonders of Flint and Genesee County, where the joy of discovery is pure Michigan. Your trip begins at michigan.org. Babies come with lots of decisions. Cloth or disposable? Crib or bassinet? So when it comes to protection, go with the safest, most effective choice, vaccination. Get all the recommended vaccines for your baby by age two to protect your child against 14 serious childhood diseases. For more reasons to vaccinate, talk to your child's doctor. Go to cdc.gov vaccines or call 800-CDC-INFO. A message from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention.
This is Congressman Dan Kildee, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Hey, welcome back, everybody. Uh, we continue my conversation with the author of uh, My Pilot, A Story of Love, or of War, Love, and ALS. Her name is Sarah Jane Geary, and she joins me by phone. Sarah Jane, welcome back. Thanks for sticking around. Sorry to make you sit through all that. Oh, my pleasure. My um, pleasure. Thank you. Sarah Jane, you said during the last segment that... Um, that that your husband went through the ROTC program and and had uh, signed up for the Air Force, I guess, for five years. Um, was he like a lot of pilots that I've uh, talked to over the years? Did he always want to be a pilot? No, he didn't. Uh, he never said he did. Uh, other than make model planes when he was a kid, put them on the ceiling. But um, we both met. He was from Chicago, and I was from St. Louis. And we met at a uh, college called Coe College in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, 1959. Uh, at that time, all the boys, freshmen and sophomore, were, it was compulsory to take ROTC, AFROTC. Uh, after two years, you could say, okay, I've taken the, those courses. That's fine. I don't want to go in the service. Well, Bernard discovered himself there. He, he ended up a natural leader. He became the cadet commander. And when they offered him to learn how to fly uh, a little tri-pacer plane and get a fly pilot's license at the Cedar Rapids airport, he said, sure. That meant that uh, when he graduated in January of 1962, he became a second lieutenant, and he could fly. And then later, he was sent to pilot training in the Air Force in West Texas to learn how to fly jet planes, which was he was fortunate because uh, he ended up flying the F-4 Phantom out of McDonald uh, Aircraft in St. Louis, the latest uh, bomber jet. But... That's ROTCs. For some, it wasn't the right thing. There were five fellows in his group that went for the flight instruction out there in, in Iowa, and only two came out of it and said, we love it, and did well. One got sick. He couldn't stand it. Uh, it was the up and down. And the others, it just wasn't for them. So it was a way from, for the Air Force to know ahead of time, even if these guys were going to be second lieutenants, but they wouldn't waste their money training them in jet planes knowing that they would, didn't <laughs> want to do it. So uh, they ended up in other jobs in the Air Force. But uh, Bernie and his roommate, um, they became uh, pilots, and they both trained out at different bases in Texas. His uh, wonderful uh, roommate, Denny Eilers, was shot down... Uh, Missing in action, uh, December, the three months after Bernard got there, he, he was from another base, and uh, that's in my book. It's a long story. He was missing in action for many, many years. And so, uh, But they, they're the ones that came through it, and he loved flying. He flew actually 11 aircraft. Uh, he liked the challenge, and when he flew the F-4s over uh, to Vietnam and to Hawaii the year before to Okinawa to do war games, they were always refueled by 
uh, tankers. And when he went with the Air National Guard, they were flying tankers. So this was in Brooklyn, Floyd Bennett Field. So he joined and learned how to do that. Then the next year, they sent them out to West Hampton Beach, and they flew the 102. Then they finally uh, adopted search and rescue, which is still there. There's only two in the country, one in California and one on the east end of Long Island. And so he flew the C-130 along with a helicopter, the same helicopter that rescued him in Vietnam, the same kind. And they work with PJs, the pararescue men. And they would uh, rescue uh, people at sea. Uh, they go to the Azores and they rescue people. And, you know, when they got caught doing something, that they were there. So it was a very, very meaningful um, thing. But that's life. You never know what's coming and you just jump in and he was with all of his heart he just loved it very much he became a, a full colonel Sarah Jane for a lot of us that are old enough to remember when the United States was in Vietnam um, our memories of that and the images uh, portrayed by various media and and books and literature and so on tend to show helicopters involved in mm -hmm. in all kinds of various missions and so on and and so when we think of aviation in Vietnam we picture helicopters what kind of how did how did Barnard end up in Nam and and what kind of missions was he doing? His uh, squadron, the 557th, was part of the 12th Fighter Wing. And they were sent to Cameron Bay, which is on the South China Sea in South Vietnam. It's been an old base. And they were the first group in with their uh, F-4 Phantoms. that went twice the speed of sound. Uh, and they kind of built their own. They had old barracks, and they, they built their own officers' club poured the cement, and the whole thing was right on the beach, practically. Um, and they were, uh, it was kind of a staging point for, uh, help, they helped the Army, they were support, uh, there was a, quite an incident about that I had in my book, in my pilot. And they also um, bombed the Ho Chi Minh Trail. This was a supply route from north to south Vietnam. Um, and they flew uh, in, um, he was actually in North Vietnam when he was shot down. It was the, the zone between South and North. Uh, oh, the, the, but they the did, famous they, demilitarized zone. Demilitarized zone. And so they call that the North Vietnam. He was not in the squadron that uh, some of his friends were in that were uh, shooting down MiGs in North Vietnam. Um, he, he was... Uh, more in, in the south part. It was just a, diff, a different, uh, and his friend Denny was doing something entirely different too. So um, the helicopters, the helicopter that rescued him was a marine helicopter. They were on alert. And I learned so much from researching this book. Well, he, um, went, he and, went down twice, right? Mm-hmm. And, and but, was, he, was he shot down? And how did you find out was it after the fact that you learned of him having been shot down? Well, the first 
the first uh, incident was uh, they had kind of monsoon rains and everything, and there was a, a group of three or four planes coming in, and they they wanted to divert because it was hard landing. And anyway, it was an accident. He had to uh, eject out of the airplane and lost a plane because he ran out of gas. And he had he had asked the supervisor. Um, he said, "I want to go up to Dung Ho and I want to uh, fill up gas or, or what, the other place." And the guy said, "No, you're going to stay here." So he stayed there and lost the plane. He and Jim, his backseater, there were two pilots. Um, they survived that. Uh, the other one, they were shot down, and uh, there he could hear he could hear them talking. He was in elephant grass, um, and so was Jimmy, his backseater. You know, huge grass and. Uh, Jim wrote a little memoir about it. It's really engaging. And Bernard, of course, it was their um, their friendship lasted so long because it was cemented there. They saved each other, you know, and they they flew together. So we, we stayed in contact then with many years. But um, yeah, it was uh, the HH3E helicopter was the same one. And how did, when he was, how did you find out that these events had occurred? Was oh, oh. it later, or, or did you get one of those frightening telegrams? Well, uh, I was always looking for the blue staff car, right? Chaplain, right. But it never came. Uh, I got a call from the Red Cross. Hmm. Um, <clears throat> the first one I found out, uh, I I was not called from the Red Cross, um, but the second one. Uh, and I wrote about in my book, it was like you're in a dream. I was out hanging up diapers because my son was about three months old then. And I had a three-year-old daughter. And I went and answered the phone. And they said, this is the Red Cross calling. Is this Mrs. Bernard Geary? And I said, yes. And they said, well, your husband's been shot down in North Vietnam. But don't worry, he's okay. He's been rescued. And you will find out more uh, from the squadron there at McDill Air Force Base in Tampa. Uh, Tampa. So I thought I would be hearing from the uh, squadron commander's wife first but it's it's a chain of command they have to let me know he is okay then they have to inform one command center to the other so then i called sandy uh jim's um wife and she got the same phone call i did um and then i went back to hanging up diapers and i'd forgotten half the stuff and i thought what what did they say so uh, I walked in, and I called the Red Cross again. I said, would you please repeat that? <laughs> because no. I, I just couldn't, you know, I was just so focused, I just couldn't believe it. So, and maybe it was the happiness and joy. I just couldn't believe that I got that kind of a call and that he was rescued. So then call, all the details came out, too. But, yeah, I had to call back. I just couldn't get over it and it was shocking they want the wives to know when they're all right as soon as possible Sarah and, Jane uh, I get uh, the impression as you talk about the timing of all this that um, that Barnard was in and out of Vietnam his his service in Vietnam he was in and out before uh, the Vietnam War became so incredibly unpopular with uh, a lot of people in the States. Is that well, true? Well, it was starting. 
Well, uh, and I did some more research on it, and of course I wrote notes, and I always stayed. I realized we were living through history, and I wanted to know everything about it. So I saved Life Magazine article on Vietnam, and they had wonderful photographers over there, journalists, uh, everything. Uh, I could find out about POWs, what was going on, and our government was suppressing a lot of that, especially about the POWs. They didn't want the wives to say anything. But uh, that's another story in itself. Um, so I noticed that things were going on in 1965 and 66. Uh, some some guy I put in the book burned himself in front of the White House, and people were uh, were protesting, but they weren't organized, and they became organized over those years. And then I think it was years later that Jane Fonda sat on that gun emplacement in North Vietnam. That was must have been 67 or 8. I don't know. It's in the book. Um, but uh, I could tell that there was a... I went up at Christmas time and took Lisa, um, and I was pregnant with Paul when he was in Vietnam, and we went to church. And the, the pastor... And this is the church he was raised in and, and confirmed in and everything. And the pastor got up, and his, his message, which was televised, was... Uh, we bombed North Vietnam. Why did we bomb North Vietnam? All political. And I thought, uh-oh. And then my mother-in-law said, yeah. She said, they're starting to gather on the street here and protest. And she said, and they even sleep, let them sleep in the basement of the church. So that's when I started feeling very uncomfortable that I was in a world of my own. Nobody really gave a darn about Vietnam except the protesters. Um, so when he came home uh, and uh, went with Pan Am, he was out of uniform. Uh, when he went back to uh, search and rescue, and when he started with search and rescue, he put on a uniform again. And that's when the POWs came home. That's when they when they freed them in the early 70s. And he was, and I think uh, uh, being uniform in the military out in search and rescue was a good thing in the community, and they were very well respected. But uh, this was a different life we led, rather than see it marching down Chicago and on the big streets and all the protests. Well, he I, didn't I run into, he, he apparently didn't run into a lot of the... Um, uh, the vitriol that a lot no. of Vietnam veterans faced coming home in later yes. years. Yes, yes. He was at the very beginning of the war. Uh, I think the first troops were over there in 64. Uh, he went in 65. Once he was back, uh, what was it like for the two of you watching what was happening around the country with all of the, the demonstrations and the anti-war protests and the way that veterans were being treated, both by protesters and and by the country, the, the government. I, I felt ashamed of my government. Um, we knew Bernard did not like what Lyndon Johnson was doing in Vietnam. He was calling the shots. Johnson was picking the targets, telling them that they could not uh, shoot, uh, destroy these anti, uh, 
these missiles that were being built in North Vietnam that Jane Fonda sat on, we weren't allowed to do it. But he had to go bomb the Ho Chi Minh Trail. Uh, none of the pilots liked what was going on over there. None of them. And it, it was just having a bad boss in the White House who didn't know it was political. So then um, uh, we started reading little cracks in the <laughs> cracks when it came out. People started writing books about the administration. And I read that book, uh, Michael Beschloss' book, uh, Presidents at War, and I found out some of the quotes that Johnson was saying and what happened in the White House. It was horrible. But, um, but you must respect the men who were uh, our countrymen over there. Our soldiers and sailors, they were doing a job. This was a, supposed to be a wonderful career. I think that was and ultimately when, a lesson learned during the, the later years of, of the Vietnam War. Mm-hmm. People are treating veterans returning from conflicts around the globe much differently now than they did then. I agree, Tom. I agree a lot. Um, my son was in the Air National Guard, and he went to Kuwait and um, uh, Iraq, I believe it was. Um, and when we came to welcome him home at the, at the small airport in Long Island, so many people came out. These guys would ride their, their motorcycles out from the city, and they just made a big line, welcome back. And that didn't happen in Vietnam, of course. Um, so, yeah, it, I think we learned a lesson there, and when things came out that were hidden behind the scenes, um, there's no sense in, uh, it makes me more um, interested in what's going on in the government and with war and the, what, what they do with our uh, men, like over in Afghanistan, and, and I just heard that the military, now they're, they're cutting funds for them, and that our military is being downsized by our government. This is what Obama also did. But you, you can't have a good standing in the world if you treat your military like that. So, uh, but I, I was very proud of, uh, that he served, and uh, I felt sorry for what happened to the Vietnamese that, that escaped. I met, I met one gal. She ran a Photoshop up here. She was on, on the last plane out. And uh, so, yeah, it, it was a... A tough time in our history, that's for sure. It's um, interesting. This, you know, is is a look back at a time um, at the beginning of the Vietnam War. Um, it, and a lot of spouses of, of military veterans, when they talk about the, the post uh, deployment period. Once the the mm-hmm. veterans are back home, they talk a lot about PTSD. Mm-hmm. Was was and and there are a lot of people who talk about you know World War Two and PTSD and the fact that mm-hmm. it wasn't really understood yet. Did you mm-hmm. experience that with Bernard? Did he? Did he have the dreams and, and sweats that, that we hear about sometimes? Not that I know of. Uh, he didn't. He was, they let him, uh, he was supposed to serve a year and they let him come back a couple months early because 
uh, Jim had had ejected three times. Bernard ejected twice. So um, he came back a little early. I I think the PTSD is so prevalent now, I see, because all during Iraq, and they would send these guys, and then they'd come home, and then they'd go back, and then they'd come home, and then they'd go back. We had enough. We had enough military in those days. There was always a fresh crop of pilots going over. But if uh, if my son had to do that year after year, and my husband keep going back, I think it's terrifically uh, stressful and it's horrible. I don't like it at all. I don't see why they why they have to send these men in harm's way all back and forth all the time. The stress on the family just alone. Uh, it's ridiculous. So you know, I have studied PTSD uh, a little bit and uh, know that they're doing wonderful things with the, with the care dogs and things like that. But um, it stays with you, my goodness, and some of the horrors of Vietnam also. And people really weren't attuned to it, and they didn't understand it. Uh, even the fellows that were like Tim O'Brien that wrote, became famous for writing this book, The Things They Carried, the grunt in Vietnam, you know, and they were in the rice paddies. Um, it was it was bad for them. It was very debilitating, especially the young guys that would go over, 19, 20 years old. Um, but I I was fortunate. Uh, Bernard was fortunate. He didn't have night sweats, anything like that. Um, so, well, this is a fascinating book because it's so. Um all-encompassing you know it 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 has the the elements of uh, uh, serving in combat but it, a lot of it is is really about life after war yes yes it was uh, inspired by his letters um, then I went on and I found a wonderful writing group here I've always been a writer been on groups in Long Island and I'd written a, a book about my um, mother's family, a sort of a historical memoir. So I said, Bernie, we're going to write about your story. And uh, I was very fortunate, and I just kept going on and on after the Vietnam letters <clears throat> inspired me, and then what came next and what came next. So it was um, kind of the story of my marriage, actually, and how fortunate I was to know such a wonderful man <clears throat> and my son, Unfortunately, he died two years ago of a heart attack. He he would have been 56 in May, and um, he he loved the guard. He was a master sergeant in the uh, fire department. So uh, I have three wonderful grandchildren and a daughter-in-law, and um, so that's that's kind of my story. And I'm just so blessed to be able to talk to you and the audience and. I've, I've sold my book at book we're, fairs. and We're almost just, out of time, and I always want to give guests an opportunity to let listeners know where they can find out more about you and the book and your work, past, present, and future. Do you have a website you can share? Sure. Uh, my website is sarahjanegeary.com, S-A-R-A-J-A-N-E-G-I-E-R-E. Dot com, And on my website, <clears throat> uh, I have a blog, and I have several different pages. Uh, on the blog, I, I write a, a, a lot, and I just put a piece on. Now I'm writing about our Pan Am trips. Well, um, I have to. do to... with travel and things. And I also, the book can be bought at uh, 
Amazon, oh, we have, Barnes we have to, Noble. We have Hi, to stop here because we're going to break. But uh, Sarah Jane, thank you. Program. Oh, you're very welcome, Tom. I enjoyed right it. Right now, the so COVID-19 much. vaccines are available to millions of Americans, and soon they will be available to everyone. This vaccine means hope. It will protect you and those you love from this dangerous and deadly disease. I want to go back to work and I want to be able to move around. To visit with Michelle's mom, to hug her and see her on her birthday. You know what I'm really looking forward to is going to opening day in Texas Ranger Stadium with a full stadium. We've lost enough people and we've suffered enough damage. In order to get rid of this pandemic, it's important for our fellow citizens to get vaccinated. I'm getting vaccinated because we want this pandemic to end as soon as possible. So we urge you to get vaccinated when it's available to you. So roll up your sleeve and do your part. This is our shot. Now it's up to you. Yo, speaking. Oh, dear. Honey, our car warranty is expiring again. So soon? It just expired last week. You don't even own a car! Not now, Dana. Your father's on the phone. Hey! Mom and Dad, you're being scammed! It's a robocall! Scammers are using new technology and clever tactics to make more and more calls that look legitimate, but are hard to trace. They can make it look like they're calling from any number, even from numbers of people you know. My robocall crackdown team is working with state and federal partners to stop the robocalls for good, but I need your guys' help. Don't trust your caller ID. Verify you're really talking to the person whose number appears when your phone rings. If you accidentally answer a robocall, hang up right away. Engaging in conversation will only lead to more calls. Use a call blocking app on your cell phone that stops robocalls before they interrupt your day. And if you do get a robocall, File a complaint with my office online at mi.gov slash robocalls. And mom, dad, please do not give your information out to these scammers over the phone. They're just trying to trick you. Well, at least they call. No, I get it. You're busy. But you know Janine's daughter is a doctor. She calls every week. A doctor. I'm Michigan Attorney General Dana Nussel. Visit mi.gov slash agcomplaints for your connection to consumer protection. It's 2022, and this year the Tom Sumner Program begins its 14th year. It would not be here without support through the years from individuals and organizations like these. Seth David Radwell. East Village Magazine. Flint Institute of Music. Hello, I'm Maestro Ricky DeMeg. Flint Community Schools. MTA Flint. Flint Comics and Entertainment. Hamity Complete Food Center. The Flint River Watershed Coalition. W.H. Wisecarver. The Genesee County Road Commission. Loan Museum Auto Fair. Thomas Appliance. The Genesee Health Plan, Flip Flip Technology, My Community College, it's Pure Michigan. Friends on Facebook have also helped by contributing to the show's online fundraisers two or three times a year. If you would like to help the Tom Sumner program continue to thrive by becoming a sponsor, send an email of interest to Tom at TomSumnerProgram.com. Add your name to the list of supporters, past, present, and future. Technical assistance for the Tom Sumner program is provided by Swiftlet Technology. 
engineering and IT services at swiftland.technology. Hey, this is First Ward City Councilman Eric Mays, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Welcome to this presentation of the Comedy Spotlight on the Tom Sumner Program. States Air Force transport plane at 30,000 feet. A group of paratroopers are jumping at this very moment. Let's listen as they jump out of the plane. Geronimo! 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 What do you want? Here comes the uh, here comes the last jumper. Let's see if we can uh, talk to him. Uh, excuse me, sir. May I have a uh, few quick words with you before you jump? Oh, but a nice long talk. <laughs> well, well, actually, sir, I just don't understand how you can jump out of a plane in a parachute. No. Well, I tried it a couple of times without a parachute. It's a lot easier with one. I see. Not as thrilling, but easier. Boy, I'll bet it is a thrill jumping out of an airplane, huh? How much you want to bet? Well, I just think it's amazing that a human being can jump out of an airplane at 30,000 feet, fall helplessly for thousands of feet, then have the parachute open with hundreds of pounds of pressure tearing at his body, and then hit the ground at a breakneck speed. That takes a brave man. That's what I told them, but they still told me to go. I noticed they were uh, yelling Geronimo when they jumped. Uh, do they yes. do that to uh, do they do that to relieve the pressure? No, no, we take care of that before we even get on the plane. <laughs> Tell me, sir, what was your most harrowing experience? My most harrowing experience. One time I jumped out of the plane and my parachute did not open, and I fell ten thousand feet and I pulled my emergency tube. And that did not open. And then I pulled my attitude and it even fell off. But I was, I was saved. How? Hertz put me in the driver's seat. That was lucky. Now it was a hard talk. <laughs> Say hello to Toulouse Lautrec. <laughs> Well, I see that everyone's uh, jumped out of the plane except the uh, jump master. Uh -huh. Yes, that's right. I'm the last one. Mm -hmm. i tell you something, though. Come here close. Yes. It's a terrible thing about the jump master, you know. Poor thing, he can't jump anymore. Really? Yes, a terrible eyesight, you know. He's very, huh? very nearsighted, and they won't let him jump anymore. It's an awful thing. Mm. Well, anyway, here I go. Geronimo! Sir, you're still here. Shut up. I told you he was nearsighted. <laughs> this was another comedy spotlight on the Tom Sumner program.
of this world you can't depend on anything the leaders that we follow they can't even write their name but here we are in america ain't it just a shame how it goes on and on our children going hungry teens are turned to crime and politicians know it's true but they ain't got no time
you pilots get off of my lawn. We're trying to do a radio show down here. It's a Tom Sumner program, don't you know? Go on. Go on, get out of here. <laughs>